Hello and welcome to the Analytics FC podcast. I'm John McKenzie, Head of Content, and this week I spoke to Tal Brown, co-founder and CEO of Zone 7. We talked about the problem of predicting injuries in sport, the impact of coronavirus on injury, and the future of big data in the sports medical sphere. Through Zone 7, Tal and his team develop and apply proprietary artificial intelligence to help athletes, coaches, and medical teams forecast injury risk and attain peak performance. He has worked with professional and amateur teams across the Premier League, MLB, MLS, NCAA, La Liga, Serie A and the Olympics. Here's what Tal had to say. Tal Brown, hello. Hello, John. Thanks for inviting me over. It's it's an absolute pleasure. It might be good beginning talking about your background a little bit. How did you end up starting Zone 7? My background is in AI and big data. I spent a career working on creating products that use predictive technology in other industries. And as things happen, I connected with an incredibly talented sports scientist, and we set out to work on this project. I want to start with the basic question that this episode poses, which is, How predictable are injuries? Well, that's the key question. Absolutely. I think that if you think about the term predicting injuries, most of us will think about some kind of crystal ball that can predict that 30 minutes into the second half, a collision between two well-trained athletes will result in a specific event. I don't think that is predictable. There is no such crystal ball. However, we can quantify risk and we can forecast risk. I use a metaphor. It's really hard to know what street corner and what exact moment this afternoon it's going to rain first. But we can, with a high degree of probability, be right when we say it's going to rain in London between two and six today. So it kind of depends on how you frame it. I would say forecasting risk of injury is a much better term. And predicting injury is certainly something that, as of right now, I don't think is is doable within a second-by-second approach. So could you talk us through the logic of Zone 7's approach then? How do you go about approaching this problem of predicting risk? Predicting things in the future is extremely difficult. And it's true for any kind of event, not just injuries. It's true for financial events and it's true for health events as well. What we do is the following. We think that by analyzing a lot of data from the past, we can look for patterns that repeat themselves before certain events like an injury. And the key here is a lot of data. And another key is patterns. So if we could analyze 10,000 injuries that happened to football players, and we could gather data about every single game, every single training session, every medical test, every little bit of data that could help leading to those injuries going back a day, a week, a year, then we'd have a lot of data to look at. And then the question is, what do we look for? Are we looking for one or two parameters, like like an Excel equation or formula? The answer is no. We use deep learning networks to find patterns across thousands and thousands and thousands of parameters. Some of them are describe athletes' well-being. Some of them describe what they're doing on the field when they play or train in terms of running and jumping. And so that's what we do. We have created a very large data set of football data, which covers the injuries, but also the trainings and the games and the medical testing and the sleep and the recovery. And then we use uh, pre-sophisticated deep learning to look for these patterns. Sometimes they are not reducible to a formula in a spreadsheet. And then we apply these patterns to the day-to-day life of a team and an individual which allows us to, with a high degree of confidence, highlight specific areas of risk. Again, it's not about predicting the injury. It's about we are now in the red zone. That red zone will apply for the next few days. 
here's what we can do to uh, mitigate the red zone, which is not rest. It's more about adjusting specific parameters, right? Maybe we should be running a little bit more or a little bit less. Maybe this drill should be done more or less and how much more or less. That's the kind of help that we provide. You mentioned deep learning there. Is this an ongoing process then? Is the, the data constantly being fed through machine learning software? Yeah, absolutely. Deep learning is only as good as the data that you can use for the learning. So when we started a couple of years ago, we had not a lot of data. You know, Over time, we were able to aggregate data from several clubs, and now we've got data from over 50 clubs that represent football as it's played in every major league in the world. So that is getting better, absolutely. And it's also getting better year after year because every year our existing clients just have more data that we can analyze for them. And we also get more clients. So this is just getting naturally by force of nature better. And it's important to understand what better means. Better means that you can detect more cases or more uh, examples of specifically injuries in our case. And also it means that you're better at filtering out the, let's say, the noise or the false alarms. So it's basically the sieve is getting more and more accurate as we move forward in time. You're talking about algorithms and artificial intelligence, and I think to a lot of lay people that can sound a little bit like hand-waving. I guess the question that people will have on their lips is how do you confirm that these algorithms and this artificial intelligence is working at the coalface, as it were? Yeah, that's that's an absolutely perfect question because making these claims is treated correctly with, with some uh, caution. There are statistic methods to verifying a claim like this. And, and, and generally speaking, there are two ways to verify this. The first way is to say, we would like to analyze your data, if you are a football team, retrospectively, which basically means, would you mind sharing with us last year's data? We will analyze the whole of it. And the analysis is done in a way that is respectful of not using the data to predict itself, which is a common mistake that's done. So we will analyze your data in retrospect, and we will compare what happened, which was the real incidents, and what the algorithm could have suggested. And that allows us to quantify a couple of things. One of them is how accurate is it in the sense of how much noise, how many false alarms would be presented. And the other, the other important one, uh, metric is what percentage of injuries could have been detected, would have received an alert in time is the better, better description. So we have these numbers. Usually we're relatively high, around 70, north of 70% in terms of detection rates. And that's great for the retrospective, the historical analysis. But practitioners, teams rightly demand to see this live. They want to see it work on a real environment without having access to the historical data. So we also do prospective, which basically means like a live trial. Let's activate Zone 7 in a live environment and see how accurately it will detect incidents that occur. You could have anything from 30 to 50 to 60 injuries in a season. So there's, there's a lot of data that we can process. So all of our claims or all of our metrics are all backed up by case studies and by, by data. Some of it is openly on the website and some of it is things that we share with clients as we engage with them. But it is absolutely correct for, for the audience to demand to understand the metrics behind Zone 7. So if that's the back end of Zone 7, can you tell us about the front end? What is it that you actually give a customer when they sign up to your services? The technical reality is it's an app. There's a cloud computation thing running in the cloud, computing the data, and then there's an app. And that app is built to be used by very busy people who are in the central part of the decision-making process of the player well-being and performance every day. An analogy I would use is a pilot. You've got a pilot navigating the airplane and dealing with a lot of decisions every day. There's a thousand levers on the airplane and buttons. 
But there's still value for that pilot to have a, a GPS system rather than roll up charts and look at the stars and all that. So with a very specific scope, we provide help in the heavy lifting of some data analysis, which pertains to how do we assess risk and how do we use a mathematical proven method to do that. So ultimately, we have an app that is used by a combination of medical staff and performance staff and coaching staff, and that app helps understand the risk to players and also what is certain ways to de-risk or to mitigate the risk, which usually are intervention strategies around calibrating the volume of training or sometimes adding, sometimes reducing, but also touches on things like strength and recovery protocols. Could you give us some practical examples of how this works in clubs? What would it look like to be using Zone 7 at a club? So football has a very specific schedule. Teams are preparing for a game at any, at any given time. And so the first thing to understand is where the team is in that cycle. How many days have passed since the last game and how many days do we have to prepare for the next game? So let's say you're playing on Saturday and it's, it's Wednesday morning. So you've got Wednesday, Thursday, you've got three preparation days for the game. In the morning, you will look at the app and the app will highlight maybe one or two players at risk in the red zone. And what that means is that it doesn't mean that they need to stop playing or stop training. It means that some patterns are being visible that are indicative of upcoming injury risk. That risk has a couple of days of uh, relevance. So for the player to be at full potential for the game, let's see what the next few days need to look like. So the app will also show you where we think or the maths is showing us that certain parameters are going too high or too low. And for example, let's say perhaps this player is overtrained on sprinting. So the Wednesday session needs to be a little bit lower in terms of the volume of sprints. And by lower, I mean a little bit lower than the typical Wednesday, the typical game day minus three pattern, which the coaching staff has. It could be different for other things. It could be different for, for example, accelerating. Accelerating is you know moving from zero to high speed, which produces a certain physiological workload. Perhaps the player's undertrained on accelerating, which means that we need to add more workload in drills that have an impact on accelerating. So that is the kind of leverage the app helps you understand. It's how do we compare today's typical session, which is, let's say, game day minus two or three, and what minor adjustments need to be made. And these are very, very minor adjustments. This is not about rest. It's about small calibrations that help the body be more in tune with what the model is suggesting is an optimal dosage for today. One of the mantras that you might hear from club physios or medical staff is that the player knows their body best. By approaching injuries through the data context, are you explicitly rejecting this kind of approach? Are you saying that bodies are largely commensurable and so as such we should ignore the player's own opinion of their bodies and that individualism sort of drops out of the equation a, a little bit? No, absolutely not. This is not an autopilot to control all the human decision-making process. This is a very helpful tool to help alleviate some of the difficulties in, in analyzing a million parameters every day for 25 individuals. The player's input is absolutely critical. And specifically, I would say most clubs will also collect that input methodologically and we will incorporate into the model. Players will report the perceived exertion and players will report wellness every day. That is critical input, both in a, in a data perspective and also from a subjective human analysis perspective. So I actually think that's, that makes the model better, not worse. And so we encourage our clients to, to share that data. But I also think, I don't know if you were going in there as well, but I think that the staff as well, the staff's personal intuition and expertise is critical as well. Is that, is that where you're headed? 
it, it almost seems as though if you treat all bodies as a data set, you're suggesting that there's something about bodies that is repeatable, right? When you're doing data analysis, you're saying all human bodies to a certain extent are the same. And I guess I'm kind of interested in the outliers there. Like, there are going to be players whose bodies are going to function in, in different ways and ways that, that can't really be captured necessarily by applying data analysis to a whole data set in that sense. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. There are outliers. And in the world of AI and deep learning, sometimes an algorithm is connected to the decision-making process, controls the decision-making process, right? This is not an automated trading machine for stock market. This is a tool at the hand of the operator. And the operator is an expert. The operator speaks to the coach and the players and looks at more data than we could. I mean, it's kind of like, think about traffic. If you're driving and your driving app will suggest a route, you can override. It's your it's your responsibility to override, whether it's for safety or whether it's because you think going the other way is a better better choice. So that's that's a better metaphor because you no longer have to roll up all the road atlases as you drive on the highway or listen to the news and try and figure out traffic. A lot of it is done for you, but ultimately it's your decision. So we like to think of Zone 7 as a tool to empower the staff, to empower the artist. They are responsible and they are the leaders of this so if we can help with some of the maths then i think that there's value for it and ultimately the practitioners that use zone 7 effectively incorporate it in a human process this is not autopilot for looking after players this is a tool in their hands to be combined with everything else they have you know which is understanding the tactical needs and understanding of course the the remaining environment around people and well-being I'm interested in the logistics then of how this fits into a sports medical department for a club. Let's say that a club already has a, a large medical department overseeing players. What would you say the benefits of Zone 7 are? And would those benefits include being able to reduce the size of your medical staff? Yeah, it's a good question. So a medical department has people, but it also has technology. The technology will cover wearables to measure you know, what happens when a player's on the field? That's already there. Everybody is having that. Game data will come from a combination of wearables and, and video uh, data from, from the game. But it's not, it's not all you have. You have medical records, right? You're tracking players and how fit they are over the year and over the years. You have various strength testing tools that measure hamstring and groin and quad strength. Sometimes some teams also have uh, watches or rings to look at player uh, rest and sleep quality. So this is already a data-rich environment, and all that data is coming into the club, and it is stored in a combination of spreadsheets and uh, let's call it data storage tools or visualization tools. So the medical staff is already deep in this process of digesting the data and interpreting the data. They've got people to manage the devices and manage the software, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we are in a data-rich environment, and so what we provide is a tool to help with the interpretation. Now, I've never seen a club change the staff or reduce the staff after introducing Zone 7. The reason is that the staff has a, is extremely busy. They're looking after a million moving parts. But ultimately, it's sometimes ineffective or inefficient to have your staff look at charts five hours a day. Because if you've got 25 players and you've got a bunch of charts for each of them, that's very time-consuming. So working with Zone 7 has allowed staff to have more efficient processes at the very least. And the other advantage is that a staff at any given team, irrespective of how well-funded it is, will always have a certain glass ceiling in the volume of information it can look at. 
There's information from these players going back maybe one or two or three years. Zone 7 has analyzed information from 100 teams and 10,000 incidents of injury and thousands of players. So indirectly, the staff is tapping into a knowledge base that is way beyond what they could ever get their hands on just because of the nature of the industry. So that benefit drives efficiency and also drives uh, the effective detection of risk, which in many cases is uh, triangulated with the staff's ongoing processes and, and, and contributes to that. We're talking about medical departments at big clubs here. I'm interested in your thoughts on approaching this the other way. So obviously there's a lot of smaller clubs in the world who won't be able to afford that kind of medical department or at least of that size. Is there a sense in which Zone 7 can sort of offer an economy of scale to these smaller clubs and, and can allow them to do way more than they are able to with the size of the department they already have? Yeah, absolutely. Some of our clients are big clubs with big budgets and big medical teams, and some of our clubs are smaller. Getafe from La Liga is one of our older clients. They've been using the software for three years. They've had La Liga's lowest injury rates for three consecutive seasons while qualifying for Europa Cup and all that. But ultimately, they are a small club and they've got a very, very small staff, literally a one-man show or maybe maybe two folks. So this really helps that team with the decision-making process. Some of our clubs are in the MLS, which is, generally speaking, a smaller apparatus. So we've been able to help both big teams with big staffs and smaller teams, you know, first or second divisions even, and help operationalize some of the data operations there. Ultimately, if a staff does not have a lot of data people or people to look at the data, then the job of the individual looking at it is, is really hard. It's hours and hours of looking at charts every day just to be ready for training. I've got a question here about the loss of human contact within injury and medical work, but you're making it very clear that that's not what Zone 7 is about. I wondered if you had any further thoughts on that, on how you are able to integrate Zone 7 within that medical environment where you are just, you're using medical staff, but you're just giving them another tool to enable their work to become easier. I would very gently use the term blind spot. Humans looking at data, there will always be some things that we miss, you know, And, and the more data is in there, and the more players we have to look at, then the chances are a little bit bigger every time. You know, I'll give you an example. Some of our clients have the wearables and they have the strength data, and now they want to introduce Apple Watches or some similar tool to look at sleep. That's another silo of data to look at, right? How does sleep quality going up or down over a week interact with everything else that is going on for this individual? That's a hard question. And, and, and the human way of understanding it is by diving into it and by trying to set up some equations or formulas to detect certain patterns. That is time consuming. So when, when we try and assist there, it's absolutely not to replace the human. It's just to provide that human with more accurate signals and maybe to eliminate some blind spots in the analysis process. The EQ, I'll use that term, of the practitioner using Zone 7 is probably the most critical factor for success, to be able to negotiate the relationship with the coach on one hand and the player on the other hand. And to be able to really get in touch with the player and understand what's going on there beyond the, the surface information that may be relayed. That is their hardest job and it's absolutely irreplaceable by software. I'm really interested in this phrase, blind spots that you've used. I wonder if there's any examples you can give us of received wisdoms that we have in sports medical physiology that have actually been shown to be not true by your data set. What is it that we've learned from this? Are there any norms that have been sort of blown out of the water by these approaches? You're asking a tough question. I'm not really qualified as a scientist to override any specific areas. But like like any other scientific domain, prevailing paradigms will change over time. Now, sometimes they get proven as absolutely incorrect. That's not the case here. But as you add more pieces to the puzzle, you realize this thing that we relied on has its limits. You know, 
One example is certain formulas that are still being used to quantify my current effort versus my average effort over the last month. It makes total sense. If you're training for a marathon, you're not going to run 30 kilometers while only being used to running 10 kilometers. You need to gradually increase your workload. That, that makes total sense. But over time, we are seeing that needs to be also looked after in a wider context. And so we are seeing more and more pieces in the puzzle helping us focus better on the result. And that's just a natural step in every scientific or any analytical evolution. It's, it's understanding there's more data and how do we make sense of it. And, and the good thing about sport is that it's at the forefront of development of human technology. So three, four years ago, it was just wearables. Now there's wearables and, and muscle testing for strength and flexibility, and we've got sleep and recovery. And you know some teams are doing work around uh, biomarkers and, and blood testing and saliva testing. So this is only going to get more and more data rich and more and more interesting. And, and over time, blind spots will still be there, but they will have a diminishing impact. We need to talk about the coronavirus pandemic because I'm certain that not only has the pandemic affected you in a business sense, but it will have affected you in terms of the data that you're inputting into your algorithms and software. So just give us a sense of what you have learned and perhaps more importantly, what your machines have learned from the current coronavirus pandemic. The coronavirus was an absolutely interesting case for us. And this is all about the schedules and the intensity. So football until this year or until last year had a very certain uh, cadence to it. You had a preseason for a bunch of weeks where you could prepare players. You had a certain ramp up. You had November things picked up. You had the Christmas slash New Year congestion periods. And then for teams competing in Europe, it was a little bit crazy, but that's how it was for the rest of the year. There's two things to note. There was the cadence one or two games a week, and then there was the preparation time and also the rest time. And what coronavirus did is it pretty much eliminated the preparation time. So you look at June last year when the German, Italian, Spanish leagues came back, they had, you know, I think the German sport extreme, they had 10 or 11 days of preparation, you know, after three months of almost absolute rest. And then you had the intense schedule. So we have seen data like that in a way but not at that scale. If you aggregate all of the congested periods we've seen in terms of data, then there was more than we thought, but it wasn't a lot. And so by having this period, we had to adjust how the algorithm understands the schedule and how the algorithm looks a few weeks down the road and uh, helps calibrate workload and helps calibrate our rest. So, you know, I, I can't give you specific bullet points of what we've learned, but this was a great case of machine learning being able to adapt really fast and being able to apply learnings from existing data and actually just roll it out very, very fast, which is basically what, what you want to have deep learning for as a, as, a, as a method. And so we were also a little bit fortunate because quite a few clients recognized that a tool like this could be really helpful because a lot of the existing training methods were needed to be refreshed. You know, you no longer had four or five days to prepare for a game. You had one. And sometimes that single day would have also been skipped just in terms of rest. So it was a very interesting and productive time for us. And then finally, just a question about the future of predicting risk, as you're calling it. Where do we go next? You know, I'll use a metaphor from the military, right? A missile detection systems. You, you, you absolutely want to make sure that no single missile gets through, right? And you also want to make sure you're not shooting down any planes by mistake, mistaking them for a missile. And these are two almost contradicting or conflicting agendas from a technical perspective, right? You know, you, you want your binoculars to be really, really, really tight so you can see everything, but then you kind of miss some stuff around it because you're focusing too hard. And as we move forward in time, 
that trade-off is going to be more and more and more uh, effective. So we will be able to detect more and more incidents, more extreme cases, while not introducing too much new noise. That's a process. I don't think we will ever be 100% perfect on these metrics. The only thing I know in in life to be 100% perfect is our human brain. You know, almost any mechanical or risk detection thing we do is is absolutely spot on as a human brain. So I don't think we're going to get to be that good, but over time, it's going to get better and better and better. And it's going to be driven by the introduction of more data sets. So there will be a day when all the Premier League players or players in the NBA are always doing it, will have a ring or a watch, and that will quantify how well they sleep and recover. That is a tremendous trove of data to understand risk, not just of injury, but of other things as well. There will be a time where cameras will be able to break down your body's physique, understand your mass, understand your muscle mass, understand your skeletal uh, misalignments. That will be tremendously powerful data. So that's all happening. This is just going to make things better and help systems like ours make less mistakes and more accurate detections. And I also think that there will be ways to find interesting usages for this data beyond the single team. I think athletes will want to tap into this as well as they train at home. As, and I think this will no longer have to rely in the future on the team you know, purchasing certain things, right? Players will go out there and they'll want to do this themselves to stay better, to be better prepared. And, and we're going to see an expansion of the technology reaching beyond the, the team market specifically. Well, Tal, thank you so much for coming on today. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. So that was Tal Brown, founder and CEO of Zone 7. If you want to follow Tal, he can be found at Tal Brown on Twitter. To find out more about Zone 7, visit at Zone 7 AI on Twitter or go directly to their website, www.zone7.ai. We'll be back next month with an episode looking at the impact of coaches on team performance. But until then, make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it, and check out all the content that is going out from Analytics FC on our Twitter account at Analytics FC. Goodbye.